Our first reading is from Paul's letter to the Ephesians, chapter 2, verses 1 through 11. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not of your own doing, it is the gift of God, not a result of works so that no one may boast, for we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand, that we should walk in them. The word of the Lord. Our second reading is from the Gospel of Luke, chapter 6, verses 37 to 42. Jesus said, Judge not, and you will not be judged. Condemn not, and you will not be condemned. Forgive, and you will be forgiven. Give, and it will be given to you. Good measure, pressed down, shaken together, running over, will be put into your lap. For with the measure you use, it will be measured back to you. He also told them a parable. Can a blind man lead a blind man? Will they not both fall into a pit? A disciple is not above his teacher, but everyone, when he is fully trained, will be like his teacher. Why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? How can you say to your brother, brother, let me take out the speck that is in your eye, when you yourself do not see the log that is in your own eye? You hypocrite, first take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take out the speck that is in your brother's eye. The word of the Lord. Amen. Good morning. I know you got up this morning and thought, ooh, I hope I hear a sermon about judgmentalness today. So this is the place to be. Johnny actually gave me a list of ways that he is frustrated with you all that he'd like me to share. And I thought I'd just start with that and kind of take it from there. Um, some, weeks, um, some weeks when I'm working on a sermon, I get songs in my head that just kind of are the drumbeat for the week. And a couple songs, for those of you who want to download stuff, new songs and look for new music, um, Eric Clapton has a song he does a lot called Before You Accuse Me. If you haven't heard that song, I'd encourage you to download it. It is a great, succinct summary of some of what we're talking about this morning. For those of you who know and like the rapper Lecrae, he's got a song called Church Clothes that is written by an outsider who's looking at the church who won't welcome him in unless he takes his backwards wearing hat off and wears the right clothes instead of wearing shorts and a t-shirt to church. Um... It's a really well-done song and a bit painful because when you hear what he's saying, you think, ooh. And he, the cascade at the end is, I would need, bring me a real Jesus. Bring me life change. Not a concern about what I'm wearing. 
And this morning, you're continuing a series. We're finishing a series on this, this book called Unchristian. You're, all some of you are asking this question, you know, what does it mean to question Christianity? Guided by two books, Unchristian, and then you're about next week to start Reason for God by Tim Keller. And you have looked at things like sexuality and ignorance and evangelism and hypocrisy. And last week when I was here, we looked at politics and trying to think about how, to, how does the world perceive Christians? Not that we might just please the world, but so we can have a good understanding of what it means when we misrepresent the king that we've given our lives to. And this morning, we're looking at what it means to be judgmental or not, whether Christians are judgmental and what happens in their witness when that is the case. This is the definition of judgmentalness from Dave Kinnaman's book, Unchristian. I hope you've been reading it. If you haven't had a chance to read it, I'd really encourage you to go through and do that. It's very helpful. Kinnaman says this, to be judgmental is to point out something that is wrong in someone else's life that you assume you know about, making the person feel put down or excluded or marginalized. We presume to understand the heart behind the actions or appearances we see. It'll be like seeing maybe one of the kids walking out of here on the way to Sunday school pitching a fit, and you sit there and think, that kid's parents aren't good parents. I bet they're terrible parents. You're this way, you had it coming, you are so. And it's easy to do with people we don't know or like. And sadly, it's also one of those sins it's easy to do with people we do know and like. With your friends, your spouse, your parents, your roommates, your kids. Oh, they're this way. Oh, I saw you do that. You meant to do that. You meant to be that way toward me. This kind of person is this way. This kind of group is this way. And judgmentalness is really the the cousin of hypocrisy, which, again, you looked at a few weeks ago. And it's kind of the easier, nicer cousin because it can be more inward, right? I can be doing it right now, and you would never know. Hypocrisy is a little more exterior. You get a sense of it more easily. But judgmentalness can be hidden, It's more a cold sin than a hot sin. More the older brother in the prodigal son than the younger brother. So three questions we'll look at in this topic this morning. What do our passages say, Luke 6 and Ephesians 2? Why is judgmentalness wrong anyway, since it's so easy and we're all so good at it? And what are a couple practical helps when we approach exiting this church to go and love and serve the Lord this afternoon? So our two passages, Luke 6 and Ephesians 2, if you want to turn, if you have a Bible in any way, shape, or form, you might want to particularly turn to Ephesians 2. We'll land there a little more as we go through this sermon. But this morning, let's start with the gospel passage that was read, Luke 6. Luke 6 is smack dab. It's the Beatitudes, the sermon of Jesus that is describing just what his kingdom is like, how the kingdom of heaven is different than the earthly kingdoms we see. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are those who mourn. These are weird things to hear, and this is not how our earthly kingdoms are set up. He's just talked about how you love your enemies in the kingdom of heaven, which again is a very otherworldly type of exhortation that he's given. These are laws of the new kingdom. And then he comes to our paragraph and he says, judge not, lest you be judged. Condemn not, lest you be condemned. And it's kind of like, a warning a parent would give to say, don't put your hand on the stove. Don't do that. 
So there's negatives. Don't do this. But then there's positives. Do do this. Forgive and give. And in both cases, there's this sense of what you do will be visited upon you. If you judge, you'll be judged. If you give, it will be given to you and pressed down, this very powerful image, pressed down, overflowing. That's the gospel way things happen. You forgive, you're going to be forgiven way more than you ever forgave. You give, you're going to be given way more than you ever gave. So some negatives, some positives. And then this very powerful metaphor that many of us have heard. You know, how can you take the splinter out of someone else's eye when you have the log in your own eye? You can't see the forest for the trees because of the tree coming out of your own eye as you look at someone else. You know, we just prayed your colic for purity. Like Johnny said, Millions of people are praying this collect at the beginning of the service all around the world today. Listen to this first start. Almighty God, to you all hearts are open, all desires are known, and from you no secrets are hidden. What if the prayer stopped there? Still a good prayer, still theologically accurate, biblically correct. But doesn't it make you break into a cold sweat a little bit? Ooh. All hearts are open. All desires are known. Yours and mine. Think about your last 24 hours. How did that go? Isn't the second half of the prayer really good news? Cleanse the thoughts of my heart. Because when you know the first part, that is the thing you need to hear and do. Because if you're judging, you're going to be judged. And if you're condemning, you're going to be condemned. So that's Luke 6. Then Ephesians 2 is kind of the log removal paragraph. If we have logs in our eye, how do we get them out? Well, Ephesians 2 is like the, the tree guy coming by your house and saying, hey, for a thousand bucks, I'll take that limb and that limb out and take it off your yard. Happens a lot to us, and it's usually double what I think it should cost. I don't know why they think I can do that. This is an uh, exhortation from Paul to the Ephesians. Now, Paul knows this church, the Ephesian church, better than any church in the ancient Middle East, in Asia. This is where Paul has spent the most time, over two years, preaching every day at lunchtime in the hall of Tyrannus. Paul knows these people. And the, the letter to the Ephesians is this cascading bit of theology given to us. And he's been talking about the work of Jesus up until now in chapter 1. And there's a shift that he's going to talk about us. And he's going to remind us of who we are. Ephesus is a capital city. It's a city of ideas. It's a city where people go to change the world. That sound familiar? It's a city where people feel they're important, have something to bring, a little bit of pride. I'm from Ephesus, not Stanton. So he's going to set up your identity, remind you who you are. Where does he start to define it? Does he start with these kinds of words? Well, you're awesome. You dress well on Sunday. You drive a nicer car. I'm great. My kids are doing better than you because I had a quiet time today. I make more money than that guy down in the front row. My kids are going to UVA and other people in the rooms aren't. 
I'm a partner, or I work for this committee on the hill, or I eat all organic. Does Paul say that's where they should start? Because Paul ate all organic. Just a heads up. No, Paul doesn't say any of that. Here's what he says. You were dead in your sins. You were dead. You really important, capital city, idea-driven people in Ephesus, you were dead in your sins. Just to make sure, he says it again in verse 5. Oh, by the way, you were dead in your sins. For those of you not keeping up, dead means unable to move, unable to help yourself, not really helping those of us who are alive. You were dead. You were children of wrath, like the rest of humanity. All of us were dead. We all once lived, he says. We all once lived as children of wrath. And you can almost hear the chainsaw starting to get that log out from that, can't you? And there's this beautiful little jewel. If you have Ephesians in front of you, look at how he shifts the pronouns. Verse 1, and you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world. Then go to verse 3, among whom we all once. Don't race as you read your Bible. Chew on your Bible. You were dead, and then we. What does that mean? It means Paul was dead too. And it only took decades by this time for Paul to have the logs unscrewed out of his own eyes to be able to write that sentence. But you were dead, and we all. So now we're all on a level playing field, then what happens to us? We earn a degree, we get an MBA, get that promotion, buy the right house, drive the right car, no. But God, it doesn't say but John or but Bill or but Susan or but Sarah, but God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead, made us alive. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places. In chapter one, he's talking all about where Jesus is. In chapter two, he has just said, you've gone from being dead to being up with Jesus. And you didn't do nothing to make it happen. Zero. Because you were dead. What happened is grace, and that's so important. He mentions that twice too, verse 5 and verse 8. And then he stresses it and says, it was a gift. It's a gift, and guess what? Because of that gift, you are now a masterpiece, and that is verse 10. This word workmanship, it's often translated workmanship. It's the same Greek root that we get the word poema or masterpiece artist from, craftsmanship. So again, watch the process You're dead. Jesus is in the throne, on the throne in heaven, over all of heaven and earth. You are seated with him, and now you are made a masterpiece. You are Michelangelo's David. You are the Mona Lisa. You, dead guy. There's the chainsaw. Lots of logs out of eyes. 
And why were you saved? Why did that happen? Why were you given that gift? Was it to go and be a judgmental hypocrite, creating us-them dichotomies throughout Europe and Asia and Vienna and Falls Church and the rest of the world? No. Was it instead to go and be God's masterpiece, sharing his good news? So there's a clear truth here. Something to be judged. Because to not be judgmental does not mean not making good choices about what's right and wrong in the gospel. There is something to be judged here. The ju- what you judge is what God has done for you and who you are. We were all dead. We will all remain that way unless God does something. But then God's grace changes us. God is merciful to all. God gives you and I a gift. And now you're a masterpiece. So you can hold your head high in Ephesus. You can walk with pride and thanksgiving. You can go with confidence into the world because of what God has done for you. And you're sent to share good works. And what are those to be? Well, again, we circle back to the Luke passage. You're to go be forgivers and givers. Don't judge. Don't condemn. Forgive and give. Because that, again, is the rule in the kingdom of heaven. And what happens, what's crazy about that, is you and I, dead guy, dead woman, dead boy, dead girl, now masterpiece, not only when you give, it should be enough that we're a masterpiece. But when you give, it's going to come back to you. God's gracious gifts to you and I to be a part of his kingdom are going to explode beyond what you and I could imagine. That is a crazy story. That's the gospel story. You give with time, you give with money, you give with affection, you give with mercy and understanding. You realize, like you, everybody has a context. Everybody has a story that you don't know, and only God knows. See, for Jesus, the context of the people he comes in contact with does not define his morality. Does that make sense? The Samaritan woman, the woman caught in adultery, Their context did not define Jesus' sense of right and wrong in those situations, but they did define his pastoral give-and-forgive response. So there's our passages. So what is wrong ultimately from those passages with judgmentalness anyway? What's wrong with it? And what we see in these is that two things. First, Ephesians reminds us that if we believe we are sinners saved by grace, to be attached to any form of self-righteousness, judgmentalness, or hypocrisy is a travesty because it denies the fundamental truth of the gospel. What's wrong when we're judgmental is it shows just how desperately far we are, we are, from understanding what God has done for us. It shows how far we are from the gospel. Again, it's like praying that colic for purity. All desires, all hearts are known, yours and mine. What if I could make a video of your last week 
not the last 24 hours. And we could see the display of my heart and how I responded to the gospel. Would that video of you or me show a judgmental hypocrite or would it show someone giving and forgiving? Judgmentalness is wrong because what should be apparent in the life of you and me in this church is that it's people who give and forgive. And to be full of judgmentalness is an incredible act of pride and self-absorption and ungratefulness. Because again, just remember, you were dead. Dead. Drive by a cemetery in town and think, that's what I was, but for God. And it's not just spiritual dead. You were going to be physically dead forever. Eternally dead forever. So the first thing, the first reason it's wrong is because when you and I live as judgmental people, we demonstrate that just how little we know about the gospel. And the second thing is that God has not asked you or me to be a judge. There was no request for applications and went out from heaven saying, I need more judges. What you and I are asked to be is witnesses. You're to be a witness. I'm to be a witness. If you listen to the the Lecrae video this afternoon, you'll see what it's crying for is that someone would be a witness to this guy. That someone would demonstrate the kingdom of heaven to him as a witness. And the goal in your series, again, is not to please the world, not to read what everybody thinks about Christians and then be the exact opposite of those thoughts so we show we're not that way. It's not to not make judgments about our life and things. This series to help, is to help you please and glorify and present the kingdom of heaven to Vienna and Arlington and Alexandria and D.C. and the Metro and Herndon and Reston. And to that end, there's a big difference between what we believe and the way we live it out and talk about it, what we believe and the way we live it out. Now, I don't know about this church, but I know at my church... It's, there are married couples who sometimes have arguments where one spouse will look at the other and say, that's not what I'm saying. And the other spouse will say, well, this is what I'm saying. And the other spouse will say, it's the way you are saying it. Now, again, I know none of the couples here know what I'm talking about. But if you want to come to my church, you can ask them. There are arguments and misunderstandings because of the way something is said. And you and I are sent to woo the world for Jesus. You're a witness and a wooer. Make a bumper sticker. Everybody know that's what this church is. And so the way you do something matters. The way you do something, the way you give and forgive, the way you represent the kingdom matters. And it is hard because sometimes you're objectified. Sometimes you're judged. It seems increasingly what's going to happen is Christians are going to be judged as a certain way. And you're going to have to step around that judgment and say, this is who I am. This is the kingdom of heaven. And to do that, to ask God to redeem and sanctify in us, we're going to probably need to know who the people it's most easy for us to judge. If they came through the doors here, it would be easy for you. Or you see them on the street or you run into them in a restaurant. Maybe it's a pregnant teenage girl that if you saw her here, 
easy for you to judge her story. Maybe a married gay couple that came to visit. Maybe a homeless man or woman. Maybe someone of a different ethnicity than you. Maybe somebody who votes differently or dresses differently or whose children act up during communion. Maybe someone who has more money. I was having a conversation with some friends recently and we talked about how easy it is to justify ourselves so much and in that kind of scenario to think, well, if someone has more money, the fallback is, well, I bet their family life's rough. Bet their marriage is rough. What if it's not? What if it's just you and your dark heart and the log you're whacking people with as you walk down the streets of Vienna? So two practical helps in what can help you and I be less judgmental people and better forgivers and givers to the world. Two things. One, and again, I know the other thing you got up out of bed hoping for this morning was a commercial for Anglicanism. This is it right now. You're in an Anglican church that reminds you again and again that you were dead and you've been raised. That colic for purity, when you pray it, should remind you, I was dead and I've been given a gift every week. This is what we pray when we confess sins. Most merciful God, we confess that we have sinned. That liturgy matters. Those words matter. They're not just a toss-off. They're in there to help you and I remember Ephesians 2. Paul went from you to we. And every week when you come in here, you're moving from you or I, myself, and me to we. There's a cross here every week to remind you of just how the gift came to you. It came gift-wrapped in the dead son of God on a tree. And then when you come every week to take communion, you get to do what? You get to receive a gift. So you have several chances every week in the Anglican liturgy to remind yourself of the gift and of who you really are and where your identity really starts. So that's your commercial for Anglicanism. But it can help. And secondly, I would remind, encourage you to remember the whole story context piece of life. People have a context. That's what Paul's saying here. He's reminding them in Ephesians, you have a context. Jesus is reminding them in Luke, you have a context. You were forgiven. You had a story. Again, you're called to be a witness. I'd encourage you this week to think about what am I doing in my interactions? Which story am I committed to being a part of? Is it first listening to someone else's story? What's your story if you're with someone else? Parent to kid, coworker, spouse, relative? Am I more interested in their story? And then... What's God's story? Other's story, God's story, and then your story and how that integrates with God's story. Because you are sent to run into people who are dead as well, still dead. And as you're listening to them, what they need you to do is not say, oh, you're dead. You're totally dead. Because Paul is writing to Christians. What they need you to do is say, I hear that pain. That is hard. 
if you have time, do you have a little time for me to tell you a little bit of my story and what God has done for me? And if you're not sure where to go, now you know, Ephesians 2. And you can just say, I was like Paul. I was dead, but I was given this gift. But as you see people, as you interact with people, I'd encourage you to think about what is their story before you jump to your story. Because what we ultimately believe is that we are all a part of God's story. You are a part of God's story. In December, I had the chance to go be a part of a friend's wedding. And I went into the district, it was up on the hill, and I parked my car, and as I got up, I was dressed like this, I had a collar on, it was very clear, I was there as a priest, and a guy said, ooh, ooh can I talk to you? And so I went over, and what became apparent was this guy was, was living on the streets, he had a chance to get his daughters back from social services, and he needed me to help him. So in and around this wedding, over the space of about three and a half hours, on a very rainy night in the district, I was driving this guy I never met to a hotel that I paid for so he could bring his daughters to be a part of his life yet again. And early on in that exchange, after my first interaction, and I said, look, I want to help you. I have to go do this wedding half a block down the street, but I will be back. Give me your phone number. And as I went into the church, I thought, isn't it neat that God brought this guy into my day and my story, my context? And it was neat. But as the day went on and as he got, and I got to know each other and I heard a little bit more of his story, as I drove home from D.C., what I realized and asked God's forgiveness for was, Lord, please forgive me for thinking he was coming into my story instead of you were pulling us more fully into your story. For it is by grace you have been saved. You are now a forgiving, giving, wooer and witness and masterpiece of the king sent to do his good work and to be a part of his story. Let's pray. Most merciful God, I thank you that we pray those every week. I thank you for how often the word mercy is stitched into the liturgy we use. I thank you, Lord, for the masterpieces represented here and all the ways that these men and women reflect you. Anoint them to continue to do that. Forgive our judgmentalness, Lord. It is so easy. Remind us that not only were we dead, but we are now alive with you. Give us a chance this week to forgive, which means we're going to be sinned against. Give us a chance this week to give, which means it'll cost us something. Wondrous gifts of-